and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're here to check out the dark side of DC. We're recapping and reviewing Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Hey, you got him! <laughs> Fuck you! <laughs> Today we are looking at Sandman issues 44 through 46, where we last left the Sandman at the behest of his sister Delirium, who herself might have been put up to it by their sister brother Desire. Morpheus had agreed to search the mortal world for their missing brother, Destruction. Now they are traveling in the mortal world in the company of a woman named Ruby, who was hired for them by a guy named Pharamond, who is the retired god of travel. Ruby, 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 Ruby! What you doing, doing to me? And they are looking for destruction by trying to find his immortal old friends, except every time they almost find one, they explode. The friends, not the Sandman. Yeah, that's right. Although... Anyway, so these three issues were all written by Neil Gaiman, with pencils by Jill Thompson, inks by Vince Locke, and colors by Danny Vazo. So on the cover of Sandman number 44, Brief Lives Chapter 4, covered by Dave McKeon, on the left side is red and features a skeleton. The skeleton has teeth in one of its eyes, like the Corinthian. And on the right side, we've got what looks like runes written over a drawing of a tree or flesh. Hey, oh, it's probably an anatomical diagram, given some things that happen later. Right, I wrote Film Collage Skeleton Anatomy Lesson. All right. So as we jump into the comic book, the narration sets the scene for us, the long day in the Northlands, the midnight sun. And this is our introduction to one of Destruction's old friends, the Alderman. Yeah, it talks about how there's something unnatural going on because the northern lights are happening in midsummer during the long day where the sun never sets. Yeah, the alderman is watching the northern lights. This is somewhere in Lapland, I think. He refers to the Lap people here. And I love this. The Laps believe that it is unwise in any way to attract the attention of the dancing northern lights or they will carry you off into the sky to be one with them forever. The alderman is old enough to know how rarely this happens. <laughs> not that it doesn't happen, no, not never. that it's rare. Not never, not just just not much. So he's watching the lights without moving, and then as the sun climbs higher, as the true day starts, he decides to check his death traps. Yeah, these are traps for stopping death, and we are told that there's a big death on its way. Right, the one to the south has caught a big death. The Alderman has death traps. Worth noting that a death trap, a trap for death, was in fact what kicked off the entire Sandman series. Oh, hey. Smart. It seems like these are like lowercase d deaths. It's not like trying to trap right, death not, of the endless. Not death of the endless, just the ill omen that's coming his way. Right. So he takes off his clothes and he pisses on them, which turns them to stone, as you do. Right. And among the clothes that he takes off are a fucking impressive hat. Oh, yeah, worth mentioning. <laughs> it's a very colorful hat, and on the first page we didn't notice that because the Northern Lights were bleaching him out. Kind of a cool color effect there. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that can be what it is. So, the next thing that he does is turns into a fucking bear. <laughs> right, as one does. He uh, it still has a human shadow, though, so he takes it and he bites it off. To bite off your shadow is neither easy nor painless. It demands a single-mindedness that is almost unknown this day. Kids these days with their fucking Snapchat never want to bite their shadows. <laughs> <laughs> never bite their own shadows off anymore. 
They just they just want to listen to Michael Jackson and Chris Cross. <laughs> These entitled millennials. Yeah. <clears throat> and he leaves the shadow here to stay in the form of the alderman and take his death for him. Worth noting that of the several titles for this issue that we are provided, one of them is A Bear in His Shadow. It's listed as the second to last one. They're all out of order for this issue. Yeah. Also worth noting, Neil Gaiman's afterward to The Kindly Ones, in which he states he intended to address unanswered questions, but decided the mysteries were more fun. This afterward is entitled, Was it a bear or a Russian or what? So now the bear pisses on the clothes, which turns them back into clothes. That's the rules. <laughs> he must have had a lot to drink. <laughs> The shadow puts the clothes on, and then the bear just lopes away. He's already forgetting that he's anything but a bear, or that the shadow is anything but the alderman. So, does the shadow put on the clothes? Yeah, you can see him here. Oh, I see. Yeah, that shadow looks very much like a dude. Okay. So, is he doing this to trick death? Yeah, it seems that way. He's decided to disguise himself as a bear for an age and leave the shadow to take his death. He's escaping from whatever force is taking out Destruction's old colleagues. See, the whole thing looked so, like, old-fashioned-y that I didn't realize this was supposed to be taking place in the modern day. There's a kind of a hint there. Back on the first page when he's describing the colors of the Northern Lights, he mentions VDU Green. Okay. What's VDU? Video Display Unit. Oh, okay. I guess that is a hint that it takes place in modern times. I guess I just thought it was a, a Russian word or something. Yeah, he's an old dude, but he has seen television screens. Speaking of things that are old-fashioned-y, Dream and Delirium and Ruby are driving along in that car. Yeah, they're driving through the suburbs. Dream is looking for something, and Delirium, as usual, is a bit distracted. Delirium asks Dream why he has stars for eyes. All the others have normal eyes, except Destiny, who's blind. Yeah, I want to talk about the art here of Delirium a little bit. She's looking somewhat distinct, from the way she was drawn in previous issues, I think. She's just kind of amorphous, you know, and can change on a whim. And her art style sometimes seems a little incongruent with everyone else. A little bit fuzzier, a little bit less locked into her shape. Right. Fair enough. This conversation comes screeching to a halt, as does the car, when they arrive at the house they are apparently looking for. So they are greeted by a guy with a five o'clock shadow... This, we learn, is Danny Capax, the son of Bernie Capax, a.k.a. the lawyer, one of Destruction's old friends, who was killed by falling masonry a couple of issues ago. Right. Yeah, so they show up at his door, and without even asking their names, he's like, come downstairs and I'll tell you all of my father's secrets. <laughs> also, he's supposedly back from college. He looks like he's about 40 years old. <laughs> well, he hasn't shaved because he's having a very bad day. Because his dad died and has all this heroin. Yeah, why don't, you, why don't you fill the readers in on that? The listeners, rather. We are told that the death by masonry was yesterday, and both Danny and Bernie's wife have spent much of the intervening time drinking. Danny shows them downstairs to this basement. As he does, he's telling them how he was always kind of disappointed in his dad, in his ordinariness. But now he's found something that shakes up his whole view. He shows the endless... His father's office, where there are stored 200 gold Krugerrands in a briefcase, a big bag of heroin, a big bag of cocaine, neither of which Bernie apparently ever used, some guns, some knives, and an assortment of passports. Guns and knives are in the top drawer. <laughs> so he's basically got Jason Bourne's safe deposit box down here. <laughs> 
Bernie's also got, I love this. I want to point this out because this really hit me when I read it. Bernie's got a Matisse and a Picasso and a cartoon by Da Vinci stored in this office. But framed on the wall, he's got a crayon drawing of himself labeled, My Dad is a Lawyer. Oh. No, your father was a pirate king, as it turns out. Well, it is, it is a glorious thing. Yeah. It's just a stark image of what Bernie valued in his life. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, he had those Krugerans, but he never used them. <laughs> it's so hard to make good use of Krugerans these days. Don't, like, heroin and cocaine ever go bad? I mean, I don't know. Maybe he rebuys the heroin and cocaine every couple of years. Okay. I think the idea here is that he's got a stash, basically, of, of resources, of money, in case he has to book it and start a new life again. Of various currencies. Yeah. yeah, exactly. If he needs to pay some 18th century pirates, he's got that. If he needs to pay some modern-day pirates, he's got that. <laughs> the conversation with Danny doesn't really come to a resolution. He's trying to decide what to tell the IRS about all this, and we basically just cut back to the car, where Dream and Delirium are on their way. Their expedition to find the lawyer not having been successful. Well, I'm sure he'll find his way. He looks like a good kid. You mean a good middle-aged man? Yeah. <laughs> well, right, he doesn't look like a kid at all, but he seems like a good kid. Ruby, having overheard the previous conversation about destiny, asks, Isn't it love that's blind? Dream, having just been through a bad breakup, has no interest in a conversation on that subject. Yeah, no love talk for Dream. He feels pretty strongly about that. And what Ruby feels strongly about is that she is not driving all night for anybody. That's right. Their next stop is Attain of the Second Look, but that's 14 hours away in, I think, Chicago? Could be. And so, yeah, they're stopping to sleep, even though Ruby's the only one who needs sleep. Dream needs sleep. Dream needs people to sleep. He doesn't need to sleep. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you'd think he'd understand the necessity. Well, he's got this attitude throughout the trip, right? Where he's kind of making a ritual of the whole thing. You know, we have to go to the mortal world. We have to travel as mortals do. And we know that he doesn't care about success. He's told Lucian that he has no intention of finding his brother. Right. He's just making a big deal out of the motions of taking the trip with Delirium. Yeah, and, and that is sort of what this section of the overall story arc is going to end up being about, really. Mm -hmm. Is how he comes to change priorities. Yeah. So we find them at a motel. Ruby offers Dream a key card, and he just opens the room without it and strolls in. Delirium responds, I don't think he likes keys anymore. Leave him. So that's probably a reference to Season of Mists, right? Where he had been given the key to hell and it came with all kinds of problems? Yeah, for sure. Delirium, not a fan of key cards, transmutes hers into the shape of a key and uses it to enter her room. Yeah, I thought that was cool too. Also, she's been playing with a bottle of bubbles. A bubble wand? Yeah, a bubble wand throughout the meeting with Danny Capex and now in the motel. And as she lays down on the bed in her room... As she's alone now. Right. She starts blowing bubbles that take all sorts of weird, complex shapes. She's got a cat. Looks like an alarm clock. A fork. A cross. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Worth noting that we are on page 11 here of 24, and this is where we get the title. Elsewhere, Ruby prepares for bed, and narration tells us a little bit about who she is. We learn that she wants to be disgustingly rich someday. She uh, turns on a bit of porn here, but she won't pay for it when the time runs out. She speaks 11 languages. Ruby DeLong is, in no particular order, Gaiman loves in no particular order, and so do I. 
A practicing Catholic, an excellent cook, a mediocre cellist, a specialist in both armed and unarmed combat, three weeks away from her 30th birthday, and a virgin. It may be unfashionable to be a virgin, but Ruby doesn't care. She wants a white wedding, and she wants it to mean something. There was a guy she liked a few years back, liked him an awful lot, but he failed a routine credit check. Pity, really. Because she wants to be rich one day. Yeah, yeah. Can't take up with some guy who burns through money. Yeah, she's got very exacting standards. That is not in no particular order. He strategically did it so that it ended on she's a virgin, so that he could elaborate on that, which means that he was lying when he said they were in no particular order. <laughs> there was a bit of dissembling there. He kind of pretended he wasn't going to be a writer, and then he was super writing. Yeah, he did some writerly things. Yeah. But... <laughs> which is what we would call them in my grad school class. <laughs> well, he didn't put the most important one first, so I guess it was not in the standard order. Okay. She's thinking to herself about Dream and Delirium and how they're pale crazies. She uh, smokes in bed before she falls asleep, thinking, these things are going to kill her. Fuck. It's not destiny. It's love. She was right. He was wrong. It's not destiny. It's love. In Delirium's room, she rereads her list and then she, quote, lets herself go. She just kind of evaporates. Yeah, at first her hair stands on end. Or maybe her hair has been standing on end all issue. It's, uh, it's pretty tall most of the time. Kind of flowing free in the air there. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, pretty much. It pretty much has been on end all issue. All right. But then her head kind of turns into smoke, like Ghost Rider for a second. Except <laughs> that's more like fire, but you know. Like Ghost Rider underwater? Yeah, oh, that could be what that looks like. She's searching for Destruction's friends. Bernie is dead, definitely dead. Attain is moving fast on the run, shielded by something. The alderman's gone. We know that he turned into a bear. We'll have to bear with him. Uh, but she is able to make contact with the next person on her list, the dancing woman. Yeah, so this is a very washed out space. Lots of fluorescent lights, I guess. Yeah, so the dancing woman is working in a strip club. And in this issue and in the next, the scenes in the strip club are drawn in a very different style. No line, really deep shadows. I wondered if it was suggestive of unusual lighting, or if it was perhaps more of a thematic statement. It's worth noting that it applies both in the dressing room and on stage in the strip club. Well, but the dressing room looks different than on stage. They're both in distinctive styles, or maybe the same distinctive style, but the color palette in the dressing room is always the dressing room, where it's really washed out, really white. Yeah, okay. So maybe that's what they look like under the, what do you call them? The makeup light. Right. As it were. Vanity. Yeah. So it could just be a lighting thing. I wondered if it was perhaps, like, emphasizing that what you see on stage in the strip club isn't quite reality. Particularly when we contrast this with the, the sort of real-life shots of the same women outside of the strip club in the next issue. Well, in any case, in this dressing room, somebody named Tiffany is really sick. Yeah, the dancing woman, Ishtar, is helping this girl Tiffany throw up. She's too sick to go on stage. Oh, okay, yeah, there was also this line. They're talking about the crowd being mostly college kids. They always get grabby and they're always cheap. And I thought it was interesting that the manager guy in the strip club has a list of performers in his hand, sort of paralleling Delirium's list. Yeah, we see Venice Mille, is that what I think it is? My lie, right? Okay. Is that, like, one of the massacres in Vietnam? I think so. Okay. She makes a point of pointing out that it's a a reference that she knows because she's very smart in the next issue. Okay. 
Does that say Lindy? It seems to, yeah. Okay. Which one's the dancing woman? She is not on that list. Huh. She dances under the name Ishtar, if I'm not mistaken. Right, Ishtar, yeah, that's yeah. it. So, as the dancing woman looks up, she catches sight of Delirium in the that's a film. dressing room mirror. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> that joke is also in the comic book. <laughs> I know. It's better when I just like let Neil Gaiman write the jokes for me. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> she sees Delirium in the mirror, and Delirium, you know, not wanting to waste this opportunity, begins speaking to her. You're the dancing lady, aren't you? You're really pretty. We'll see you soon. Dream not really understanding what a motel room is for, he's standing bolt upright in the center of his motel room. <laughs> and he starts having a conversation remotely with the librarian, Lucian. How do things go in my absence? All goes well, my lord. Ah, no difficulties? No, lord, no difficulties whatsoever. So Morpheus is basically just checking in here, just asking if anything interesting is going on in the dreaming in his absence, because he's sort of moderately interested in what he's doing, but he's totally happy to be pulled away from it if anything calls for his attention. Right. Lucian asks how the quest is progressing, and Morpheus reiterates again that he has no intention of finding his brother. I travel for the sake of traveling, and that is all. However, yes, Lucian, perhaps you should make inquiries. It occurs to me that it is possible that certain forces might be acting counter to our interests in this matter. If this is the case, I would know who, and I will know why. Right, Dream's not super invested in this quest, but he doesn't like to be fucked with. I want to point this out because I think it's an interesting character beat for Morpheus. Lucian kind of stands up for destruction here. I only met your brother on a handful of occasions. However, I liked him enormously, and I also respected him. I hope you do find him. But Morpheus's response, as if this settles the whole issue, is, My brother abandoned his responsibilities. That's something Morpheus doesn't forgive easily. Yeah, so when Dream wasn't carrying out his responsibilities, shit was all fucked up with Dreams. People got the sleepy sickness... Yeah, Dreams escaped from the Dreaming and wreaked havoc. Yeah, all sorts of shit went sideways. Now, are things not getting blowed up because destruction's not around? <laughs> well, we're going to come back to that issue. Okay. Morpheus mentions that, in retrospect, it seems to him destruction might have told him it was his plan to do this, and we get a flashback to that. So this is about 1790, the date that's been established for destruction's departure. Destruction meets up with Dream, and Dream has brought the Corinthian with him at the Corinthian's request to walk the Earth. The Corinthian, for those who've forgotten, is a white-haired, handsome guy who's wearing sunglasses to hide that his eyelids are full of teeth instead of eyes. Yeah, as I remember, he was dressed as sort of a bum in a doll's house. I kind of thought he was more of like a Calvin Klein version of a bum. <laughs> okay. Well, he's much more fancy and dandy here. Yeah, much more foppish here. And a Corinthian is basically an old-fashioned term for a rake. You know, a handsome gadabout. So the three of them, Dream, Destruction, and the Corinthian, are standing there in the street. They had to meet on Earth because Destruction spends most of his time there. His work keeps him there, and also he just likes people. Right. Now, while they're there, a pickpocket tries to steal from Dream... 
Dream stops him, accuses him of having something of his, and the guy calls him a ninny hammer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, this guy is an artist of insults. (laughs) Let's do the whole thing here. You're a lying corpse white ninny hammer, a worm picker and snail catcher. Hold your tongue, sir, or I'll wet my needle and sew your lips together. If the eyes are the windows of the soul, then your soul is as black as the devil's arsehole. <laughs> wow. So good. But Dream shuts him up right quick when he um, reveals that he knows all about him, including his future. You are Dickon Hawksthorn. Tell me, Master Hawksthorn, was it wise to return from transportation? When they find you out, you'll swing for it. Neil Gaiman also likes returning from transportation. Oh, yeah? In American Gods. Oh, uh, yeah. L.C. S.C. Tregowan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, in uh, exchange for this affront, Dream prophesies the man's death by hanging and then curses him with dreams of hanging until that day. Here, take your damned stone, you white. I will have none of it. He hands back the ruby dream stone. Destruction says that was unnecessary. But Dream says, I do not tell you how to conduct your affairs, brother. I must confess I see no reason for you to tell me how to conduct mine. My affairs. Yes. I have given much thought to my affairs in recent years. Times are changing, my brother. Destruction takes Dream to a nearby college. The Invisible College, he says. Where he shows Dream what reason has been accomplishing lately. It is no more reliable a tool than instinct, myth, or dream, but it has the potential to be far more dangerous for them. They are exploring and creating, defining and dissecting. And here we get something of an anatomy lesson. Something rather ghastly. They are dissecting an orangutan here at the Invisible College. Dream mentions here that he doesn't have much use for reason. It's too limited. They send the doctor slash instructor, whatever he is, out of the room. He implores them to touch nothing. The Corinthian is not planning on honoring that. Destruction talks about Isaac Newton and his treatise on optics, the conversion of light and matter. After a while, certain ideas become inevitable. Yeah, he also says one of them has prismed the sun's rays into beams of discrete color. A pretty phenomenon indeed. So, the sense that we're getting throughout this conversation is that Destruction is clearly tired of his work. Yeah, tired of his work and despairing of where the human race is going. Are not light and gross bodies intracontrovertible? Alas, they are. And from that follows the flames, the Big Bang, the loud explosions. Right, so prisming the sun's rays into beams of discrete color leads inevitably to atomic bombs. Right, and here we are basically getting, at long last, the answer as to what happened to destruction. He walked away from his domain rather than be responsible for nuclear bombs. At the same time, we see the Corinthian already collecting. Sir, my orangutan, where are his eyes? Did you observe? What happened to his eyes? Eyes. I see no eyes. Gross. Destruction is saying, then follows my time, brother, the age of fire and flame. Back in the present, the motel is actually on fire. Yeah, I thought this was a cool moment of, like, dreamlike logic. Dream is having a a flashback, a reverie, about fire and flame and rubies, and he comes out of it to find the motel is on fire, and he says, Ruby. 
Now, the firemen are trying to hustle Dream out of the motel room, and he's not having it. He's just standing there casually in the fire, asks how it started. You people. You people are just going to kill me, you know that? Yeah, we think we know. Lady in the room next to yours, smoking in bed, falls asleep. Cigarette falls onto the bed. Woomph. It was just lucky the night porter saw the smoke coming under the door and called us when he did. Now, we get here a panel of Ruby's grotesquely burned corpse, and it mirrors the anatomy lesson that we got in the previous scene and on the cover. Oh, yeah. Half of the orangutan's lips cut away, and here half of her face is burned away. Right. Dream next asks about his sister, and since she has been let out of the hotel, apparently he walks out. Will you kindly get the hell out of here, or am I going to have to bust you in the mouth and carry you out myself? That will not be necessary. I can find my own way out. And thank you. You have been most helpful. So another person they need has died, and again by way of destruction. Dream is not happy about this. We failed her. Reason was never an important part of my dominion, but certain conclusions become inescapable. Certain conclusions become inescapable, mirrors, destructions, line, certain ideas become inevitable. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you understand what I am trying to tell you? He asks Delirium. Ruby is dead? Yes. Oh. Oh, wow. That means I get to drive. And that's the end of the issue. There are a lot of parallels. I've already pointed out a couple of them. But between the flashback just before this concluding scene and the concluding scene itself. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I think that there's just a lot of thematic and visual links between the two of them. And I think that's really pulled off interestingly. Yeah, not necessarily something that strongly impacts the plot, but it's kind of cool to see a sort of dream logic applying in this series about dreams. Well, that brings us to Sandman issue 45, The Driving Instructor. The cover is blue, with a photo of a woman smiling mysteriously down below, and up top, a dollar. Also a butt. Oh, there's a butt. Yep. Didn't even notice that butt. Sure you didn't. <laughs> I'm not sure it's more embarrassing to have noticed than not to have noticed. <laughs> so, here we get a pretty brunette woman. She is making her way into a sort of shambly apartment. I have written down that she's a redhead, but yes, she's noticeably pretty and in a very kind of straightforward, almost girl-next-door way. I don't want to spend a lot of time breaking down the different prettinesses of women, but she is a love goddess, so I think it's worth noting that she's beautiful, but not, like, overtly erotic. Well, spoiler, yes, we will find out that she is a love goddess. But yeah, she's, I mean, she's she's working as a stripper, and she's very much like, you know, she's got an unsuppressible good look, but she's not really trying hard to glam it up here. She's just, yeah. you know... This is just an average day. And she finds Tiffany, who you will recall was sick last issue. And is still sick, I guess. Yeah. Now this is Ishtar, the dancing woman, who we met a little bit last issue. And we can gather that she's immortal because she's on Delirium's list. It may be jumping ahead a little bit, but she's going by the name of the Sumerian goddess of love, sex, desire, fertility, and war. Indeed. So she's brought groceries for the sick Tiffany, and she starts making scrambled eggs. Tiffany asks, do you think I'm attractive? Ishtar responds, sure, Tiff, what's not to like? I thought that was a strange thing to say. Hmm, okay. 
I guess she's sort of jumping to the conclusion that Tiffany thinks there's something about herself not to like. While Ishtar is making the eggs, Tiffany is telling this story uh, about this stripper she knew in Portland. She wasn't allowed to have needle marks at the club where she worked, but she was doing a lot of heroin. And she started shooting up in her eyes. Tiffany sums this up with the things we do to be loved, although I'm leaning more towards people don't change. They like their old shite too much. <laughs> Cassidy. Yeah. Old Pranchus Cassidy. Yeah, I thought that was a strange thing to say, like the things we do to be loved. It's really the things that this girl was doing to get high. Yeah. <laughs> more than more than to be loved. But the notion of the you know, the adult club as a place of a kind of worship is big in this issue. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to point out here Ishtar is making breakfast. She says, scrambled eggs and toast. That's protein and carbos. Carbos was apparently what they called them. <laughs> 30 years ago. It took us 30 years, but we got rid of those O's. We dropped that O, yeah. <laughs> Ishtar serves up the eggs. Tiffany has one bite and Ralph's. Oh, yeah. It's a real gross Ralph. Ralph art here. And I, I want to commend Jill Thompson on this post-Ralph posture. as She's got just this kind of well, that was gonna fucking happen, look. I tried to fucking tell you. Okay, let's clean you up and try the protein powder. Meanwhile, we find Delirium making her own driving sounds while driving. I'm really good at this, aren't I? I'm really good. I knew I'd be good at driving. <laughs> Dream, look at me. Look at me driving. <laughs> she asks if she can give the car centipede legs to make it faster. Dream says no. Spoil sport. Uh, is there anything else on this page I want to talk about? Oh, yes. Yes, there is. Why is that car making that noise? Whoop, whoop, and flashing its lights at us. I have no idea. Perhaps the driver wishes to talk with you. <laughs> well, they have arrived at the correct conclusion. She is being pulled over, and she's rather huffy about it. You, out of the car and keep your hands where I can see them. You mean not make my hands go to the moon or anywhere? Her hands do not go to the moon is one of the titles of this issue. Ah, yeah. I am not in the mood for jokes. Out. And he actually has his gun on her here. Yeah, she must have been driving very unsafely. Right. What the Sam Hill's the idea? I've been trying to get you to pull over for five miles now. You've been driving all over the road. You've driven through every red light. Listen, you better have a good attorney, kid, because your ass is green and growing. Let's see your driver's license. Huh? Have you got a driver's license? I'm a very good driver. You're the single worst driver I've seen in eight years on Highway Patrol, lady. And right now, you are in it up to your ears. Well, we can argue about whether he overreacted, but she's about to. I think you're nasty to me now. I think you'll have invisible insects all over you now, for all your life and forever and always. And the cop, of course, goes into a frenzy. Yeah, and he does. He immediately hallucinates himself covered in invisible insects. Was that really entirely necessary, says Dream? This mirrors his confrontation with the pickpocket in the previous issue, and her response is about the same as his was in that scene. I don't tell you how to, um, but you do, do it, you know? Yeah, and as well, worth comparing this to what Desire did to the clubgoer who was interested in it in the first issue. Oh yeah, what a dick move. Yeah, so 
crossing the endless can work out badly for you, even the nicer ones. I don't want to drive anymore. Let's just go poof and be there. I can go through Tiffany's head. She's this girl. I know how. Poof. Dream says no, and instead he calls on Matthew for help. When you were a man, were you able to drive a motor vehicle? Could I? Hey, I killed myself drunk driving, didn't I? I mean, the first time. I am not convinced that is any recommendation, however. Okay, brief review of Swamp Thing material that we haven't covered, but Matthew the Raven is Matthew Cable, a supporting character in Swamp Thing. He was mortally wounded in a drunk driving accident in Swamp Thing, Volume 2, Number 26. In exchange for not dying, he allowed himself to be possessed by the villain Anton Arcane, which led to the coma in which he eventually died. Morpheus introduces Matthew to Delirium here. She's only the second Endless sibling he's met after death, but she's met eleven ravens. He will advise you on the protocol of vehicle management. One of the titles is The Driving Instructor, as I mentioned before. Yeah, I like this too, as they're about to set off. Dream says to Matthew, Delirium will drive. You will advise her. I'm sure you will find the experience one of great interest and variety. Oh yeah, that's a good line too. So back at Tiffany's place, we find Tiffany cleaned up and feeling better, or looking better at any rate. She asks, why do you pick Ishtar? Assuming it to be a professional name. Oh, here she says, it was a lousy movie. And Ishtar says, it goes way back. Why'd you pick Tiffany? Tiffany explains that she is actually named after the jewelry. Her mom had a Tiffany watch. Yeah, and little Tiffany, if she was good, got to wear the Tiffany watch for a brief time. She says it's the only thing she took with her from home. She stole it. Right. And she gives her real name here, which she finds highly embarrassing, Elva Ellen Rasmussen. Yicky, huh? She is wearing a Madonna Blonde Ambition tank top. Okay. Blonde Ambition is not a Madonna album, as some might be tempted to think. It is the name of a Madonna tour, which was in support of the album Like a Prayer. Mmm. So there's a little connection there. Right. Tiffany, rather insightfully, asks why Ishtar doesn't dance as well as she can. <laughs> yeah, and Ishtar kind of says, oh, you know, that's not what they're here to see. And later on, when we see her dance as well as she can, I really have to agree. <laughs> <laughs> they come to see tits and they come to see ass and legs. Maybe a pretty face and a good head of hair would be nice, but they don't come to see us dance. And they don't want to see me dancing for real. Ishtar demonstrates the butterfly call, which is apparently a move Tiffany saw her do before during the song Like a Virgin. Yeah, another Madonna reference. Right. And virginity is going to come up in about two pages here, too. Oh yeah, good point. Tiffany also mentions here that her Tiffany watch was stolen by an ex-boyfriend named Sean, who is a disgrace to the name. <laughs> yeah, I thought... You know what it really reminded me of is when she was describing how this guy took all her stuff. It reminded me of Constantine's ex, who took Sandman's bag of sand and all his silver surfers. <laughs> all his silver surfers, yeah. <laughs> Jack Kirby art, you know. Yeah. Tiffany wonders if all men are shit. She says she's never met one who didn't start out White Knight and end up pond scum, and they all tell her she's dumb. Yeah. She has a thing about people calling her dumb, and the guys she dates have a habit of doing it. Tiffany asks if Ishtar has ever known a good man. One, but that was a long time ago. Suddenly, Tiffany gets this vision of a black bird saying something. 
Really? Ishtar says. Cool. What was it saying? Drive on the right! You'll kill us all! Drive on the goddamn right! Ah! <laughs> but he's a bird. I mean, he can just fly away if there's a car accident. Yeah, he's... Well... <laughs> I was going to say he's the safest one in the car, but he might be the only one in the car not indestructible. Yeah, the people you really got to worry about are the people not in the car with them. Yeah. Delirium is not focused on the driving task. She's rambling about how death took her to a movie once, and it was 101 Dalmatians, and Dalmatians are dogs, not flowers. Matthew says he's seen the movie, and she decides to jump out of the car and dance. This is page 10, when we finally get the title. I'm a stickler for that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. Look, that's not a great idea when you're on a freeway. Just head back into the right-hand lane, and we can talk about the movie then, okay? Um, okay. Ishtar and Tiffany arrive at the club, which is called Suffragette City. Don't lean on me, man. That's the, that's the first rule. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the club. That's on the wall. Right. <laughs> like, rule number one, don't lean on me, man. <laughs> I also want to point out that one of the titles of this issue is Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am. Which is also a line from Suffragette City. Oh, yeah, okay. They are greeted by a woman named Nancy. Ishtar has been thinking about temple prostitution. They've been having a conversation about this that we've missed on the way to the club. Nancy recognizes this. 3,000 years ago, the Temple of Astarte, which is another name for Ishtar, uh, every woman in the country had to go to the temple once in her life and service one man. And as the conversation proceeds, they step into the club and the art style shifts. Right, which, again, I took as... You kind of took it as being, like, unreality. I just took it as, like, stark lighting. Right. Hi, Dan. They greet the bartender. Hey, ladies. Dan is really bored in my version. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I guess he's, you know, he's working the bar at a strip club that's mostly empty, so it makes sense. Yeah, he would be bored. Ishtar says Nancy's got it right so far. Nancy adds that working in the temple prostitution wasn't considered to take a person's virginity. It doesn't count. That's all I can remember, except that the historian made some sexist crack about the women, because they couldn't leave until someone made love to them. He said the good-looking ones got off early, but the rougher-looking ones sometimes waited in the temple courtyard for months. But that's history for you, all written by men. How do you know all this stuff, Nancy? Tiffany, I got a master's in women's studies. So, what are you doing dancing? The money's good, the hours suit me, and I get a room full of men making me feel wanted and paying for the privilege. And when I get old and my boobs start to sag, I'll write a book about it and go on Donahue. So setting up the idea there that one of the perks of working in the strip club is feeling wanted, feeling loved. Right, the worship idea. Yeah. That angle, again. Ishtar talks about how this was a very significant ritual and a terrifying experience for both the women and the men, where they gave themselves to lust and the unknown. Right, so this temple prostitution was a form of worship for Ishtar, which gave her a sort of sustenance or power compared to American gods, which also had sort of a, a down-on-her-luck goddess working as a prostitute in the book. A love goddess? Bill? Bilquis. Bilquis. Yeah. <laughs> in the show, well, I guess it happens in both the show and the book, but in the, in the show, her vagina eats a guy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was, um, it was Joel Murray in the show. Oh, okay. From uh, from Mad Men. Yeah. Bill Murray's brother. Yeah. Right. Very Brian Fuller-y. Does he do a lot of work with Brian Fuller? No, I don't mean that the choice of actor is Brian Fuller-y. I mean that the, the scene is very visually weird. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Which is very Brian Fuller. 
Nancy goes on to say that temple prostitution only occurred in matriarchies, when men were so terrified of female sexuality they had to regulate it. Repress or regulate it. Nancy starts to wonder what happens to gods and goddesses when the worship stops. Some of them die, some of them change, and some of them just keep going. Maybe some even get jobs as dancers. So that's pretty explicit at this point, letting us know that Ishtar is actually Ishtar. Yeah. And it's really kind of a seed for the novel American Gods. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. We're definitely bumping into American Gods territory throughout this story arc, and especially in this issue. Nancy says that they're in the sex industry, and Tiffany corrects her and says maybe you're in the sex industry, because she talked about escorting a couple pages ago. Okay, yeah. Tiffany mentioned it as something that she would probably never do, mistaking Ishtar's interest in historical prostitution for an interest in doing it now. And Nancy mentions, I did some escort work when I was in college, Tiff. Don't knock it till you've tried it. Right, here Tiffany corrects her. Maybe you're in the sex industry, Nancy. The rest of us are in showbiz. Here Tiffany refers to Mylai as a drink, causing Nancy to call her dumb. Ishtar kind of has to... Tiffany, don't hurt him. (laughs) Yeah. So, Ishtar goes out and dances. She's thinking as she does. She's worried about Tiffany, but she can't live her life for her. She's just kind of going on automatic here. She has the coolest looking bra. All right, all right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's so psychedelic, man. It's kind of a swirly bra. Right. It's got like these these swirls. Spirals on the cups. Yeah. Yeah. A very pronounced red garter here that gets stuffed with dollars. She finds herself thinking once more about the women in the temple courtyard. There is a magic generated by money given for lust. Once on, It says once on a time, not once upon a time. Okay. Once on a time, she could use that magic, draw it to her, create an aspect, take the power to herself. Now she uses a shadow of it to survive. Even a little worship is better than nothing. This is interspersed with lines from I Heard It Through the Grapevine, which she's dancing to. Ooh, I bet you're wondering how I knew. That seems significant to me. All right. Outside, the car-bearing Dream and Delirium arrives at the strip club. And Matthew has an amazingly sleazy line here. I haven't been in a place like this since I had hands. (laughs) He also says, I used to love these places. My wife didn't mind. She might have minded if she knew about it. Uh, his wife that he's referring to is, of course, somewhat important DC character, Abby Holland. I think it's Holland. Oh, yeah. Once she marries Swamp Thing, it's Abby Holland. It's Abby Arcane before that. Right. And Delirium tells Morpheus that Ishtar is here and isn't dead or exploded or anything. I am relieved to hear it. As Ishtar becomes aware of them walking into the club, Under Pressure begins to play. Boom, 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 chicka, boom, boom. Yeah. I like the, um... (laughs) I like the clever use of soundtrack, even though there's no audio in the medium. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it can work. The doorman informs them that there are no birds and no chicks allowed in the club. Yeah, they're not allowed in, especially not with a large raven. But Morpheus pulls the same trick that Delirium used to get into the leather bar back in the first issue of the story. He just makes the bouncer see them as appropriate patrons and they're let right in. If you reflect for a moment, it will occur to you that we are three adult males, dressed and attired in conformity with local standards, and you are only too pleased to invite us into your establishment. You all have a great night now, you hear? Oh, and one of the adult males in this panel here actually points out, this is Delirium, I did that, what you just did, I did that in the beginning. Yeah, she makes sure that we don't miss the callback. Yeah. As they enter, 
Ishtar recognizes delirium. It has been a very long time, and she has met a great many people, but there are some people you never forget. And Ishtar suddenly runs off the stage. Yeah, she books it past Nancy and Tiffany, who are both dancing as well. The manager tries to stop Morpheus following her backstage, but Morpheus just intimidates him. Hey, was it you that upset Ishtar like that? Because I'm telling you. No, you are not telling me anything. You will, however, remove your hand from my arm. I will talk to the Lady Ishtar, and I will talk to her in private. Now. Do you understand? And he calls everybody except Ishtar out of the dressing room. Hello, Belili. Ishtar. As you will. It has been a long time. Apparently they know each other, although even so, it didn't occur to Morpheus that the dancing woman would be her. And it didn't occur to her until now that the face in the mirror would be Delirium. Yeah, I, you know, I assumed Delirium was the one she recognized, but she knows Dream too. It turns out that she used to date Destruction, and Dream never approved of her, something he made very clear at the time. You had precious little time for me when I was seeing your brother. And I have to admit, this is the last place I'd expect to see you, this little temple of desire. She says, 2,000 years ago, he called her a bad influence on Destruction. I remember. I have not changed my opinions. You really don't like women, do you? He's not here to fight, he says. He has a question and a warning. The question is this. My sister and I seek our brother, your former lover. Have you any clue as to his present whereabouts? I haven't seen him in centuries. That is not a direct answer. I don't know where he is. Is that direct enough for you? The warning, of course, is quite vague, but it's a warning that she may be in danger. I do not know what, and I am unsure as to why. However, the fact remains as I have stated it. Why, thank you, Dreamlord. Is that all? Yes. I loved your brother. I really did. You were goddess of love. I would expect nothing less of you. Man, he's a dick. Yeah, he's being pretty douchey in that scene. She calls him out on some of his misogyny, which is interesting, and kind of plays into the next issue. I, You know, there's a whole conflict between him and death and delirium in the next issue, where Death kind of has to tell him to not be such a prick. Yeah, that's a good point. He's rather patronizing toward the female Endless, or at least toward Delirium. I also want to point out he dropped a couple of her alternate names in that scene, Belili and Astarte, he mentioned. And she said that they're short on oracles, which comes back later. Right. Out by the stage, Delirium is making a spectator give Tiffany all his money. I went inside her already. You should give her lots of dollars. Oodles and oodles of them. <laughs> I don't think he has context for that remark. No. Dream's heading out. He says he knows where they're going next. Uh, boss, how about ten more minutes? No. Ah. Ishtar heads out to get back on stage to start dancing again. She starts telling this story to Roger, the manager here. Once every great year, the king used to watch her dance. It was the last thing he ever saw. I know how gods begin, Roger. We start as dreams, then we walk out of dreams into the land. We are worshipped and loved and take power to ourselves. And then one day there's no one left to worship us. And in the end, each little god and goddess takes its last journey back into dreams. And what comes after? Not even we know. I'm going to dance now, I'm afraid. She doesn't look afraid. She looks totally kick-ass. And as she heads on stage, I thought this was neat. She takes off and throws away the garter she had been using to collect dollars. Yeah, and there's a real contrast between the way that the other two dancers on stage are portrayed, kind of 
maybe a little timid looking, and she who's just like spread like an eagle, you know, just glamorizing in the space. Yeah, a powerful and utterly comfortable presence here. Right. She takes the stage, Sister Midnight starts to play. That's the first track on Iggy Pop's record, The Idiot, which we talked about earlier on this podcast. Is that the same one that has the song that's really smoochy? Yeah, it might. Is The Idiot the album that he did with David Bowie? Yes. So there's a Bowie theme running throughout here. Yeah. Yeah, I think David Bowie wrote that song, Sister Midnight. Mm. Although he obviously didn't write I Heard It Through the Grapevine. No. Tiffany's in a panic seeing that something is happening here. The music begins, a low menacing bass. Ishtar nods in approval, and she begins her last dance. And she just starts going crazy. Yeah, the power that she's unleashing here is hurting and killing the men watching, but they remain enraptured by her. Yeah, I wrote three adult men, which was what uh, Dream said that they were to get into the club. Oh, yeah. It's also the audience that we see watching her here. Murray Brown feels a sudden tightness in his chest. His head falls on a pile of beer-sodden dollar bills, and he gasps for breath while he stares and rejoices. And Shep Case, who hasn't had an erection in a dozen years, is ejaculating violently again and again and again, and now he's coming blood and he doesn't care. And Tiffany runs, and Ishtar dances. And we have a page here of no dialogue whatsoever. There's just energy, huge amounts of energy flooding out of the club, pouring off of her as she dances without restraint. She cries out. We see light pour out of the windows and doors of the club, and it explodes. And then the first panel of the next page, the club is rubble. Tiffany made it out all right. She's naked, except for her dollars. Someone comes up and has a line here. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. That's Job 115. This is Desire. Ah, Tiffany, console yourself that you can't be that dumb. At Wastes least... no time calling her dumb. God damn it, Desire. <laughs> At least you got out of there before she went critical. Desire could feel how Ishtar still loved destruction, even at the end. He was the only one, Desire says, who wasn't used up in 30 or 40 years. Desire takes off its coat and gives it to Tiffany. Yeah, Desire is already starting to fade out of existence as it puts the coat over Tiffany's shoulders. Don't ever let it be said that I never did anything for you. Desire says it tried to tell them, tried to stop this quest, but they wouldn't listen. Some people aren't bright enough to come in out of the rain. Yeah, it says as it's disappearing from the rain. Yeah, and leaves Tiffany alone in the rain. So again, it's kind of a crack about Tiffany supposedly being dumb. Yeah. Hey, mister, where'd you go? Hello? Hello? And that is the end of issue 44. That's the end of issue 45. The end of issue 44 was a while ago. <laughs> so what's your interpretation here of what happened to Ishtar? Was she controlled by the force that's destroying Destruction's old associates? Do you think she just got tired of the immortal hustle? Or did she just want to be a goddess one more time? I sort of had the latter interpretation. I didn't connect it to this being more Destruction. Mm -hmm. You know, the same way that all the other people on the list died. Until you mentioned that, I just kind of thought of it as her, like, unleashing her full power. Just particularly after this kind of brutal conversation that she had with Morpheus, she's been restraining herself, keeping herself down for centuries, and she just wanted to be herself at full strength one more time. Yep. Maybe the protein powder. <laughs> you know, she had her Wheaties. 
are you telling me she wasn't herself until she had a Snickers? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm saying, uh, you know, when my boys get that syrup in them. <laughs> get a little antsy in their fancy. So this is she was really about the disastrous after effects of breakfast food. Yeah, I guess so. Sugar early in the morning. Right. So launching into Sandman number 46. You pick a title for this one? I wrote down, have you got anything with a happy ending? That's the title of the whole episode. Yeah. On the cover, we have something wrapped up in a sheet on the right, possibly like a box of artifacts. Uh, on the left, we have a cat leaping out of a window, and there's a statue of Bast, almost like a canopic jar. Yeah, I wrote that there's a lot of cats. Yeah, this is about to be the issue of Sandman with probably one of the top three for number of cats. Not a thousand, surely. No. That's probably the one with the most cats. Yeah. Okay, so here we have Destruction, again trying his hand at creation. I love the use of sound effects here as he's writing. The sound of his writing is Scritch, and when he crosses out what he wrote, the sound effect is Scritch crossed out. He's trying to think of a rhyme here, and then he gets it. I'd, bide, cried, died, hmm, dried, I'd... Fried? Fa, fa, fa. Aha! I have it! There, it's finished. Are you ready for this, Barnabas? As I'll ever be. Barnabas is his brutally honest dog companion. Yeah. Who we met before when he was painting. Basilisk and Cockatrice, a moral poem. Are you going to read the whole thing? No. Okay. <laughs> So, Destruction reads his poem over a full page. It's a terrible poem, forced rhythm, obvious rhymes. Barnabas responds, Well, at least it wasn't long. I take it you weren't overly impressed, then. Doggerel. Rubbishy doggerel. Really? Really. You also overuse the word never in the final stanza. Well, you'd know doggerel, eh? Spare me. So, there's a joke here that Destruction is no good at creation which calls back also to the conversation a couple issues ago about how Dream is no good at reason. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. He also mentions here that he doesn't dream. Right. Wouldn't do to give too much away, especially not now. I don't see what you're so worried about. No? Ah, Barnabas, that's because you never met my family. Oh, yeah, I like how they got there, too, which is that Barnabas asks about their plans for the day, and Destruction says Barnabas should be gazing adoringly on his master. <laughs> And Barnabas says, in your dreams. So as we cut away from that scene, we find Delirium looking stricken. Dream has just announced that he is not traveling with her anymore. Yeah, but he said he knew where they were going next. And he meant that he was going the fuck home. Because he's a goddamn quitter. I will go back to my realm, Delirium. And you will go back to yours. They've hurt or killed everyone they were seeking, so he's decided to stop the quest here before anybody else gets blown up. But our brother, we're looking for him. We have to keep looking. We do not have to do anything, Delirium. Take a drink. <laughs> Dream doesn't want to fucking do anything. <sighs> All we have done thus far is bring death and damage to those we seek. No more. Delirium says she thought they were friends. And he says, Friends, my sister? I thought we were family. And reality just kind of shatters. Like the enemy encounters in Final Fantasy X. And she just walks through it back into her own realm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He just fades away here. And she says, and this is this is heartbreaking. Well, I'll be back in my realm then, if you want me. If 
anyone wants me. And yeah, just walks out of reality. And they leave behind the, uh, what kind of car did we agree that it probably was? I asked somebody who knows cars, and apparently it might be a Morgan four-door sedan. Okay. We talked about it being a Bentley. Might be a Morgan. Okay. In Dream's realm, Nuala is dancing on the stairs to music that she is singing herself. Dream arrives and instructs, stop that. Yeah, she just stands stock still here looking chastened. He is no fun. That joke never really gets old. Speaking of fun, though, we get a really great page of his realm. Yeah, so he tells Lucian he's back and that the journey's over, and then we just have him sitting in this fabulous room on the stairs to his throne alone. This is a full page that's really awesome. There are stained glass windows that are just hovering in midair with no frames. Right, just sitting in the starry sky. There's planets and shooting stars and architectural grandeur. There's a great curtain and a great staircase. Yeah, the staircase which has no support whatsoever and has his throne at the top. He's sitting halfway up. Like Tyrion Lannister. Because he has a fucking awesome chair that he's not using. He's sitting on the awesome stairs instead. Right. And here we get the title page. It's only page seven. Morpheus calls up Faramond. He says that their journey's over and that he had to leave the car. He apologizes for Ruby, who got killed on their quest. Oh, me. That's the trouble with mortals. They do that. Not to worry, eh? Faramond. Yes, Lord Morpheus? Do you not regret Ruby's death? I try not to let myself get overly fond of them. It only leads to sorrow. And you? I only knew her but briefly. Brief lives. Yep. Yeah, and even though Morpheus only knew her for a day, he seems a little surprised at how easily Faramond takes the news. Mm-hmm. Now Morpheus wills close every door into the palace until his throne room is totally inaccessible. Assured of his privacy, he begins to conjure and create. So he takes a handful of sand and pours it out, and he turns it into a world of dunes on which the moon rises. That was pretty cool. Yeah, Dune is a good book. You're right. He walks in this world through the dreams of places long gone to the city of Bubastis, as she never was. There are ghost cats all over the place. And then Bast. Yeah, this is her dream, apparently. Yeah, we last saw her in Season of Mists. That's right. I had commented at the time that I thought she and Morpheus maybe had a thing going on, and we're about to find out a little more about that. Do tell. So Bast greets Morpheus. She asks if she is dreaming this meeting, or if they're meeting in a dream. He answers that it's a real meeting, but she says she doesn't know if that's a real answer or if she just dreamed it. But he says that he recreated this place because he knew she liked it. And worth noting that as he enters her presence, his eyes become cat eyes. He uses the phrase, I brought it about. She picks up the ghost of an embalmed cat, or possibly a dream of a ghost, or a ghost's dream. And she sort of mulls her own obsolescence. Hmm, let me see. I suppose it's possible that today you thought to yourself... Why, it has been two years since last I saw Lady Bast, and too long before that. It has been far too long since we sat beneath the summer moon together and talked of pleasant fripperies. Of that and of this, and left others to speak of sensible things, of import and consequence. I shall rectify this on a moment. And, suiting the thought to the deed, you sought me out. So it's been two years since Season of Mists. Still going in real time, I suppose. Yeah, they're good friends, but they don't see each other that often, because they live a really long time. Worth noting that at her request, he has now conjured up a tent 
and a bed underneath it. And she is saying all this as she's kind of preening on the bed in front of him, looking quite sexy. Catnapping, I would say. It may be worth noting, I don't know if we've described her, Bast is kind of a bluish-gray woman. She looks like a woman from the neck down and a cat from the neck up. Uh, and generally goes about topless. Yeah, whereas Dream is the opposite. He looks like a man all the way down. Well, I was going to say that he looks like a cat from the, from the neck, but that's just not true. It just isn't true. <laughs> no, just, that's not what he looks like. He's not like. a cat with a man's hair. I mean, he's got hair on the top of his head. I guess you could say from the hair up. Have <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you found a cat with, you know, with that particular grunge look? But then that is no longer your way, so it seems to me more likely that you have come to me to talk of sensible things, hmm? You are most perceptive, my lady Bast. Oh, Dream, I do love you, you know. You make me laugh. Why weren't we ever lovers? Perhaps you know me too well, my lady. See? You're so funny. I'm just going to throw out here, in American Gods, Bast also makes an appearance and actually does sleep with the protagonist's shadow. Really? I don't remember that part. Well, it sort of happens in a dream. Oh. There's a bit where he's staying in an apartment with several Egyptian gods, I think. Are these the guys who do the embalming business? Jackal and Ibis, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and Bast, I think, like, is literally a cat during the day and appears in his dreams at night as a woman. I see. <laughs> I saw a tweet or something that was like, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, reread American Gods right now. <laughs> and I was like... Or read it if you haven't read it. If you have read it, reread it. Read one time. And it was like, yeah, and I was like... I just read it last year. <laughs> so, and I love the way that they waste time in this comic book, because Bast has just wasted Morpheus's time for three pages, and none of it felt like a waste to us. Yeah, they're having an interesting conversation. Yeah, and establishing something about their relationship. Anyway, they finally get to the point. He is here to ask if she knows where destruction is. She implied she did in their last meeting in Season of Mists. She offered him the information in exchange for the key to hell. In exchange for hell. Right. But it turns out that that was a fib. There's a moment here. She suggests that she'll only tell him if he becomes her lover. And then she says, but I wouldn't do that. And tells the truth. Yeah, you wouldn't want to sleep with anybody without enthusiastic consent. And she knows that. Yeah, she does not know Destruction's location. Uh, she knows where he was 60 years ago. In Paris, when his companion savaged one of my people. His dog chased a cat. Ah! <laughs> so she doesn't know where he is, but she suggests he use an oracle. Right. But as Ishtar mentioned, oracles are not to be found. Well, very specifically, there are no oracles who can tell me of my family if my family do not wish it. Yeah, and he's getting cattier and cattier in his features. I don't mean he's being rude. No. And if you look, she kind of looks like she's primed to pounce in a few of these panels. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, he's turning increasingly into a cat as they have this conversation. He says there are no oracles. She says, none. And he says, you have been most helpful, my lady. And for that, I thank you. And with that, Bast wakes up. Yes, she wakes up in her own temple. Drastic art shift as Bast is awake now and not seeing her residual self-image in her dream. It's a grittier setting. She's looking older. Yeah, she no longer is able to choose prayers on merit or whim as she once did, because they just aren't as plentiful as they used to be. 
Yeah, she catches and kills a rat, but even that effort tires her. She's getting older, she's barely able to fulfill her godly duties. And she doesn't really remember the dream conversation with Morpheus. Her dream fades as she wakes. She remembers little of it. There was somebody she really liked, somebody in difficulty. She couldn't help them. On the next page, we find Mervyn Pumpkinhead visiting the library of the Dream Palace. He is apparently here to install a new bookshelf, which he does by putting paste on the walls and then gluing up a picture of a bookshelf. Yeah, I thought that was pretty rad. Yeah, I mean, every scene with Mervyn Pumpkinhead in it is awesome. <laughs> that Looney Tune physics there? Yeah. Oh, they're doing another round of Looney Tunes crossovers. Oh, yeah? DC? Yeah. Catwoman Sylvester. <laughs> Okay. Lex Luthor Porky Pig That's is a weird one of choice. them. Gossamer Harley Quinn is one of them. I don't even know Gossamer. Is that the monster? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, I think the last one is Joker or somebody. Okay. So, <sighs> just like the last time we saw him, Merv is complaining about Morpheus moping about his breakup. I mean, he's our boss, you know, right or wrong. But the guy's a flake. But he concludes it's not his fault. You hang out with poets and those guys, you're bound to go a little flaky. He ought to hang out with guys like me, salt of the earth, real everyday Joes, you know? We'd set him straight. Morpheus comes up behind Merv and scares him. You're a book pusher, I mean. Hey, nothing against books. But it seems to me that these days you're practically running this place. My Mervyn Pumpkinhead voice and my Matthew the Raven voice are exactly the same. (laughs) I think of Merv as a cockney, whereas... Matthew is from Louisiana. The old days, a hundred years would go by and he maybe wouldn't have said dozen words to you. But then, when I was held captive and the castle crumbled, Lucian stayed here and did his duty as best he saw it, while the rest of you fled. Who else here can make that claim? You, Mervyn? What did you do while I was imprisoned? A bit of this, a bit of that. I drove a bus... We saw him driving the bus way back in Sandman number five or six. This is a great panel, too, as Merv's eyes have gone as wide as his whole head. Even though he's a pumpkin, he has expressive eyes. Yeah, it looks really cool. Good work, Jill Thompson. Now, if you will excuse us. (laughs) Yeah, sure, no problem. You don't be, boss. Old Merv Pumpkinhead, what a kidder. As Merv slinks away, Morpheus asks Lucian the results of his investigation into the forces that blocked their journey. So, Lucian has found nothing, which is exactly what Dream expected. But Lucian does inform Morpheus of another development in the gallery. Delirium's sigil has gone black. Yeah, so this is where Death has to show up and give him a good kick in the ass. So, somebody did show up to set him straight. (laughs) Yeah. Morpheus calls Death, and she pops in, but she's talking to Lucian, pointedly ignoring Dream. And that's where she drops the title. I'm not talking to you. Lucian. Have you got anything with a happy ending, and nice people in it, or funny animals? Morpheus solves this problem by causing Lucian to fade away to another part of the dreaming. And why are you not talking to me? Because I'm mad at you. That's why I'm not talking to you. (laughs) There's a great panel of her scrunched up in a huff with her arms crossed, and he's just staring. Yeah, he's got a question mark over his head. Huh? (laughs) Just a box. (laughs) What did you do to Delirium? What have you done to her? She's closed off her realm. You've seen her sigil. I merely curtailed our journeyings. I was trying to protect her. Huh. Well, you better do something about it. Such as? Again, the concept of doing something about it. Entirely lost on him. Take a drink. (laughs) You know what she's like. She's not exactly stable. She's only a kid. Go and talk to her. 
Why me? You upset her. You sorted out. But she's closed her realm. She will not want visitors. Yeah, now here, Death knows exactly the button to push. She says, I'm not having her going the same way Destruction did. Very well, I will talk to her. Is that all? Yes, I suppose it is. She says she knows Dream's breakup was hard, but he shouldn't have taken it out on Delirium. She stands up on tiptoe to kiss him and leaves. There's a tiny red heart little emoji that emerges <laughs> as she kisses him on the cheek. He looks quite nonplussed. Don't lose your temper with her. Yeah, so I don't know if she was actually worried about Delirium going prodigal the way that Destruction did, or if she just knows exactly what button to push with Morpheus, but it certainly worked. It's interesting how much of the series to date has been about just the fact that Dream, transformed by his experience of captivity in the first issue, yeah. is correcting his old mistakes. Yeah, that's right, and sort of... Did I forget something important? Yeah, back in number 44... We actually see as Destruction is about to walk away, there's two panels of Dream about to reach for him, and doesn't. About to try to stop him, and didn't. Mmm. I see. So even though he's mad as hell that Destruction abandoned his realm and his duties, he also feels some guilt for not doing anything to stop it. So, he goes into Delirium's world, and it is trippy as balls. It looks like a collage made by a high school student. There's a mollusk and <laughs> okay a guy's head on a butterfly and the word mediocre that's pretty much training day exactly i just laughed unnecessarily at a mollusk <laughs> the fuck's your problem yeah we see him floating in this blackness and then he flies toward this psychedelic tie-dye colored light and enters delirium's realm kaleidoscopic and ever-changing is what i have written he finds a sundial that says Tempest Frangit on it. Time fractures, the opposite of time heals. He calls it a remarkable sundial, but Delirium complains that it has stopped. Now that's interesting, both because we know that Delirium started out as Delight and was broken by time by something that she experienced, and because Morpheus doesn't seem to have entirely healed from a lot of the things that happened in the past, particularly Destruction's abandonment of the Endless. She's cut off all her hair. Uh, instead of rainbow-colored hair, she now just has a blonde, choppy buzz cut. I have written, she's all gothy now. She's got a black leather jacket and a bunch of piercings in her ears and face. Oh, she's still wearing the fishnets all over. True. And also, her words are still inconsistent in size, but her balloons are one color now. If you weren't my brother, I'd make it so you could never get out of my world. So when you thought you were out of my world, you'd just be further in. That's what he did to Alex Burgess back in the first issue. Yeah, that guy was a shitheel. Have you ever gone mad, Dream? I could do that. I could do it if I wanted. You aren't even wearing your helm. He sits down beside her. If that is what you wish, then I will go away. But first, if I may, I would talk with you. I... I wish to apologize. He admits that he was never really seeking destruction. He was actually just hoping to run into his ex in the mortal world. He had an ulterior motive. Because it's so small, right? The mortal world. Yeah. Just probably bump into her around the next corner. Yeah. All us mortals know each other. 
it's unrealistic, but it is actually the way things work in dreams and stories. You do run into people you know. That's also the way things work in the DC universe. <laughs> okay. They didn't every run into mo- the Martian Manhunter on their journey either. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, every, like, every mook who ever fought Batman has also, like, you know, somehow met Starfire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least once. That's why you gotta be careful if you're gonna be fighting a bunch of mooks and say something like, Fuck Batman! <laughs> Fuck Batman! <laughs> Batman hears about that, a tear rolls <laughs> down his cheek. As he's boxing that guy into submission. <laughs> Batman continues punching unhappily. <laughs> That's the stage direction. <laughs> Is that show set in the Arrowverse, or is it set in the movie universe? The Teen Titans show. Yeah. I think it will be the movie-verse, but I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. I don't know if that means that he's the second Robin, because the the Batcave in the first movie, uh, in Batman Superman, had what appeared to be a memorial to a dead Robin, yeah. So Morpheus says he quit the journey not out of malice, but because of its negative repercussions. But, he says, If you are willing to travel with me, I would resume our journey together. Um... Dream, do you like me? Yes. I suppose I must do, Delirium. You entertain me, and it distresses me to see you troubled. And the color comes back into her speech bubble. Really? Really. Well, I like you too, I think, when you don't tease me. So let's go and find him properly this time. Ready or not, here we come. As she brightens up, the background behind her turns into a, uh, kind of a child's drawing of a cat. Yeah, more cats. Not a good drawing of a cat this time. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. It's been a long time since I talked about how much I missed Sam Keith on this book. <laughs> if you're going to provoke me, I can. So that is the end of part six, end of our issues for today. Right. Now, we have something special planned for our next Sandman issue, right? It is possible. Watch this space. Because we may be devoting an episode to coverage of Sandman Universe number one, which just dropped. Yeah, that's right. And you will not be listening to that episode. I will not. You are remaining unspoiled. I will not be in it. I will not be listening to it. It'll be your man, Sean, here, and a special guest. Uh, That's right. Eric is doing a little traveling, and I may be visiting you fine people with the aid of someone not yet revealed. However, that was, as I said... It's really interesting to see The Endless as almost the cast of an ongoing story. And we don't really see that in any other story arc. Here we see Dream and Delirium having a drive together. That sometimes the genre of the story in which they are taking part is a sitcom. <laughs> so you're saying that it's like the very, very old and the restless. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But these issues have been focused fairly heavily on the relationships between the Endless, and we had some nice drama there between Dream and Delirium, where he kind of had to drop his uh, patronizing asshole attitude that he's expressed for most of the series. Yeah. And really apologize. He kind of had to drop his utter dickhead facade. (laughs) (laughs) And he reveals that he has at least some affection for his sisters, if nothing else. It's interesting that being such a disaffected asshole is clearly such a part of his persona. Mm-hmm. And yet, he also, we know, has a long string of exes. So he is kind of, like, always falling in and out of love, you know? Destruction has one ex that we know of. Yeah, that's right. Um, delirium and death have none that we are ever 
or that we have yet been made aware of. Yeah. So he's one of the most, as far as we know, the most romantically active of the Endless. Yeah, that's a good point. It's interesting that he reacts the way he does to Ishtar. I mean, he's got a long string of exes, and obviously he's just been through a bad breakup. So he's kind of grumpy about the whole nature of love. Oh, oh, of course you were in love. Of course you were. Not really, though. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And she, of course, you know, still loves destruction centuries or millennia later. I was just going to say, you could have told me yourself that you loved someone else. (laughs) Instead, I heard it through the grapevine. (laughs) What do you think of the uh, reappearance of the Corinthian? Oh, that was kind of neat. I mean, you know, Neil Gaiman, I think, likes putting in little cameos that don't serve much purpose except for, hey, I know that guy. Basically fan service, but it worked for you? Yeah, yeah. It was fine. It was nice to see him well-dressed for once. I liked his Victorian-era sunglasses. Oh, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So we have now basically the moment, not necessarily the moment that Destruction went prodigal, but the closest thing that Dream knows about to it. Possibly the moment the decision was made, or the last time he saw him, perhaps. What do you think of the reveal? I mean, what do you think of the reasons that he left? He's obviously had experience with nuclear weapons before. I don't think we're meant to think this is the first time. But he's getting tired of presiding over the mass you, deaths of mortals. Are you saying that there have been, like, cycles and cycles of human civilization? Uh, cycles of human civilization? Well, yeah, we know about the civilizations that existed before the Great Lizards, right? That was mentioned in the Yeah, okay. Um, but as well, just, you know, thousands of alien worlds. Okay, so yeah, so he's been through this whole process before, and he's not eager to repeat it. Or perhaps humans are going to be worse than any other previous civilization has been. Right, yeah, that's not an unusual stance for an artistic work to take. You humans, you kind of suck. Well, and the human race, the DC Universe version of the human race has, like, Joker and Lex Luthor and Ra's al Ghul and guys like that, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, not good. Yeah, so as we proceed, we will see what happens to the Realm of Destruction as its master has abandoned it. Oh, really? Okay, well, that's... Okay, I'm looking forward to that. All right, so stay tuned for our next Sandman episode. But next week, see how the sausage is made. (laughs) It's Hellblazer. John Constantine, guest starring in his own book. Interesting. Yeah, that's probably right. Man's work next week on Vertiguise. We love you all. Goodbye. Goodbye now. Vertiguise is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. Hey, if you like our show, you should send us an email, vertiguise at gmail.com, with your questions, your pro tips on where you'd like to see the podcast go, that kind of thing. Now, you've gotten all out of order, and I can barely remember now the name of our website, which is vertiguise.blueberry.com, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, only in this circumstance. Show notes on every episode, plus lots more episodes. We would love it if you would reach out to us on Twitter, at Vertiguise. You can find me at BlankCastSean. And if you would care to leave us a rating or a review to help other people find the show, that would really help us and them out a lot. <laughs> but uh, as always, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Since the midnight
I don't know, because I maybe I'm too jaded because I saw him I saw him reading Moby Dick and I was like, Oh, you think maybe the Punisher wants to lash out against the world whether or not it's rational? Yeah! <laughs> who's a who's a guy reading a fucking book about revenge? <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell. I feel like that is actually good writing and I should be impressed that whoever put that fucking book in John Bernthal's hand knew what Moby Dick was about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well not as good as uh, Star Trek first contact. Yeah. Yeah, Moby Dick is... The book's so nice, they made a Star Trek movie out of it twice. <laughs> twice? Oh, because Khan! Because Khan, yeah. Khan also is up on that shit. Yeah. Enjoyed that book, apparently. Yeah. Memorized certain passages. Yeah, well, he had a lot of time on his hands. Well, maybe much like Frank <laughs> Castle, he was like, I am dedicated to revenge. Maybe I should read the classics in the genre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think if like he had like, read, like, The Good Earth, things would be entirely different? <laughs> 